Sarcoma Insight. Sarcoma Insight, this is our destination for education for both benign and malignant tumors. Hi, everyone. Um, So welcome back to today's episode of Sarcoma Insight. Uh, On our previous episode, we spoke with Dr. Antoinette Lindbergh about viewing sarcoma and talked a little bit more about that diagnosis and uh, treatment and how patients typically present with that diagnosis. And that leads in perfectly to today's episode in which we're going to be speaking to a survivor of Ewing sarcoma. And we're very excited to have our guest on today, Brandy Benson. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're really excited to get to speak with you about this. And um, I know our audience will our listeners will be very excited to hear your story as well. So we really appreciate you taking the time to meet with us today. We know you're very busy and you do engage in conversations like this all the time. So um, we're very fortunate that you're also taking the time to speak with us. So thank you so much. Yes, Brandy or Queen Brandy, as we call on this podcast, is a, uh, an author, uh, speaker. She's a veteran. Uh, she's a cancer survivor and she's an advocate for other uh, people with cancer or other patients with cancer. Uh, and she's, she's much more than that. And so we are very excited to have her and uh, can't wait to uh, hear what she has to share with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I know we kind of talked about this last year sometimes, so it's really cool to see that it's finally here and we get to talk and have a really good engaging conversation. So thank you again. And this is a continuation of our sarcoma stories segment. We previously talked with Dr. Kurt Weiss um, a few episodes ago and uh, his experience with osteosarcoma as a, a child and his story since then. And um, everyone really loved listening to that episode. We got a lot of really good questions from it. Um, and we're excited to have a, a similar experience with you today. Uh, so this is going to be a similar type of episode where we're again speaking with a patient who's a survivor of cancer of a type of sarcoma. So let's start it off with some basics. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I am originally from California. I was born and raised there, lived there for 15 million years. And then when I was 16 years old, my family decided, my mom and my stepdad, they decided they wanted to move from California to the tropical islands of Hawaii. We left, of course, you know, who doesn't want to move to Hawaii, but that's kind of where like my very first introduction to like adversity and hardship and what resiliency and what it really meant. That's where it came from. Uh, So about a year into living in Hawaii, my stepdad, decided that he no longer wanted to be married to my mother anymore. So, you know, he left us and then that's when everything broke loose and it was extremely hard and life became, you know, uh, something different than what we thought it was originally going to be. But, you know, I grew up in Hawaii for a little while. I went to high school out there, went to a school called Kalaheo High School. It was a good, you know, decent school, played basketball and soccer there. I did really well uh, growing up. I, you know, I was really athletic my entire life. And a lot of people thought I was going to go professional, but then, you know, cancer happened. So that didn't happen for me, but was very active. Um, had a really good time, you know, my teenage years, young, all of that stuff. So life was always, it was good. You know, I would have never have guessed that a couple years later that I would be going through something really hard, you know, health wise and, and experiencing death. 
almost dying. So I would never have ever guessed whatever happens, happens. (laughs) Well, at least that's what it was for me. It was interesting. Yeah. um, And thanks for sharing that experience with us. And, and so kind of, you're starting to lead into it, but tell us what some of the things were that you first started to notice when you first became aware of your diagnosis. What are the things that led up to that? Okay. So when I, in 2000, I think it was like 2006, I ended up leaving Hawaii to go to Illinois to live over there. And I was really just like running away from like all my issues and stuff that was happening in Hawaii. So I wanted to start fresh. So I moved to Illinois. I lived, it was about two hours away from Chicago. And I stayed with my sister out there. My sister had a baby. um, So she was, you know, thinking about joining the military because she needed to provide for her kids. She needed, you know, medical and dental. She needed all these things to now provide for this, this little baby human being. She needed a strong, you know, support system for him. So she ends up joining the military and, you know, I'm very competitive and I'm like, okay, my sister is going to start her life and her career. Like I need to do something too. You know, I have to do something. I'm the bigger sister. I should have probably joined before she did. So she joins in 2007 and then 2008, she kind of talks me into joining the military. She's explaining how great it's going to be. And, you know, um, of course I could play soccer for my country and I could do all these great things and I could play these sports and I'll get, be getting paid and I won't have to worry about anything really. <clears throat> so I'm like, okay, that sounds like a really good idea. So I drop out of college and I swap out my college books for M16. So I go and I join the military and my mom thought it was a terrible idea because she thought both of us were a possible, like a high possibility that the both of us would end up getting deployed to Iraq, which ended up happening. She got deployed and I got deployed shortly after. Um, so when I was deployed in Iraq, like, of course, it's it's not, you know, a glamorous thing. It's everything that they display on TV. It's, it's war, you know, it's ruins, it's, you know, fires, there's fighting, there's bullets, there's guns. Like, it's really chaotic. It's very stressful. And it's real life. You know, you're really there in the midst of being in war. So while I'm deployed in Iraq, I, you know, to, to keep time from being so bored out there or not bored, but like to keep your camp, keep yourself from going insane, you just work out a lot. So in December, I'd been working out like three times a day. And I continue that just for months and months and months. But in December, my body was, you know, feeling a little weary and a little tired. And then January approached and I was feeling that I was just so lethargic and so tired and so exhausted, no matter how much rest I got, no matter, you know, what I did, I was just, I could not get out of the funk of just being so tired. So that was like one symptom that I didn't know that was something I had no clue until years later, but that was like the very first one. And then on January 17th of 2009, I was stretching and I felt a lump sticking out of my leg. And the only way I found it was if I laid, I was like laying back on my cot in my bed and I pulled my left leg up to my chest and I'm stretching. And I just like ran my hand down the middle of my thigh. And there was like this little lump sticking out. And I was like, that's so weird. You know, what is that? I've never had a lump. I don't even know what a tumor is. I've never met any, not that I know of. I never met anybody with a tumor. So I was like, so dumbfounded, had no clue what this was. And because I didn't know what it was, I didn't think it was serious. So I didn't go get it checked out. I kind of like waited a little while and I would show my friends, you know, show my, my NCO, show my friends, show the doctors. And everyone thought something very, very bad was wrong. So, you know, something was going on. And then me just being naive because I'm 24, best shape of my life, you know, that of course this can't be anything terrible. 
who knows, but that's how I found it. I was just stretching one day and had this lump protruding out of my leg and turned out that it was something very, very serious inside of my body. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really amazing. And I mean, we, we definitely hear stories like that a lot and it's just, it's, you may not have even have any pain. It sounds like, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I had no pain. I would, I was pushing it. I was like, you know, trying to make it move, but it was really firm. It was just like staying in place. And again, I never met anybody with a tumor. I never even know what a tumor was. I thought cancer only happened to people who had like bad, healthy habits. Like they drank, they smoked, you know, they did drugs, poor habits of, you know, life. Or I also associated being bald with cancer because that's all I saw on TV back then. So I was like, there's no way that I could have cancer. Like I'm not bald. Like how, you know, that, that would have never crossed my mind. Cause I didn't put two and two together. I didn't know that was the chemotherapy, the treatment, you know, if that saves your life, quote unquote, I had no clue. So I was just so ill educated um, about cancer and how it presents itself and how anybody could get cancer and you could be the most healthiest or unhealthiest. And, you know, it's like a, a stray bullet, like anybody anybody could get it at any given time. So I just didn't know what I was really up against until, you know, I got diagnosed and did all my biopsies. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And kind of like you mentioned, maybe the tiredness or fatigue at the beginning could have been an early symptom in hindsight, but it sounds like you had a lot of other really good reasons for being tired as well. So um, not, not uncommon to, to write something like that off when you're otherwise young and healthy. Yep. It was definitely uh, written off for sure. But I thought that the reason why I was so tired was because of the exterior things. Like there's war, family, literally our, our alarm system that we had that was around a base, it didn't work for the incoming, for the, for the missiles or the bombs that were coming in. So you're always alert. You're always really stressed out. If anything happens, like you're getting ready to run into a bunker. So you're just, so stressed to think that something inside of me is like, you know, turning its back on me. That just made no sense. You know, I just thought I was just tired. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a couple questions. Mm-hmm. Um, first is what arm of the military? Were you? Oh yeah. I was in the army. Army. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, and one thing that we did touch on, uh, for some of our listeners from the previous episode, uh, the age that people um, present with Ewing sarcoma, and often it is in younger people um, who are very active. And 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 part of our discussion at that episode was how because it's a young younger person, very active, fit, etc. It's very easy to say, okay, well, it's because I'm exercising a little too much. Is is because you know, you know, maybe I'm doing too much, you know, or if something's hurting, I'm a little sore from the workouts, et cetera. Uh, and so that's something that we did touch upon that, you know, I want to, you know, correlate that with, with the, with the real story, um, of it happening. And it sounds like your, uh, mass at this point is in your thigh. Yes. In my right. inner thigh. You, mm-hmm. It's in your inner thigh. We do not know yet how extensive it is or what is affected. Is that correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. And so um, what was the process then for you? Because then you had to go through all of these, but, um, and actually before we could talk about that, you, you touched on sort of the media perspective or the, 
the idea that everyone has of cancer and cancer patients that you had going into all of this. How do you think, do you think that that has shifted since 2009? What do you think is that sort of media perception at this time? I think that it definitely has shifted because there wasn't social media around like it is right now. Like there's so much Instagram, TikTok, all of that. I feel like it's Everybody has their own little audience where you can educate them. You can tell them about what's going on. So when somebody sees somebody who is going through, you know, treatment in their bald and stuff, they know that it's probably chemotherapy. It's not the cancer, you know? So I do feel like a little, there's a little bit more education, you know, with that, at least that's what I think. Yeah, that's good. And, uh, and then sort of from then on, you know, you touched, you said, you, you know, I think you, probably have to get an MRI is what I'm guessing and a biopsy, right? And uh, and then other studies um, as well. And so, you know, if you could, if, if you're comfortable, you know, shed some light on what that process was for you. I know sort of going to memory bank 2009, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like it's yesterday. Yeah, so I ended up showing a different couple of different people. So backtrack a little bit. So December, January timeframe, I was so exhausted, so tired. And when I'm showing all of my friends and the, and the doctors and NCOs and all that, what's going on with my leg, everybody's really concerned about it. So I'm thinking, okay, if these people think that it's that bad, if I go to the medics, they're definitely going to think something's wrong. They're going to put me on quarters. Quarters are like days off, like two days off. And I was like, I can catch up on some rest. I can get some sleep. Then everything's going to be fine. So that was my whole motive of going to the doctors was to get to be on like sick leave so I can just rest and catch some sleep and just you know, just really just rest my body because I was so exhausted, but that's not what happened. So I go to the doctors and of course they think immediately, I'm sure they know something is wrong, but they can't diagnose me because there's no proper machinery. I haven't gotten any tests, no labs, no, none of that stuff then. So they come in, like a couple of them come inside and they're putting their hands all over it and like moving it around and ask me, how long have I had this for? Does it hurt? Do I have any other bumps anywhere? And I'm just like, I'm so tired. you like, no, the answers are no. Like, just let me go back to my room and go to bed. And they're like, okay, well, you're on the next helicopter out of here at 830 tonight. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, okay. You know, they're like, you know, we're going to be flying out at night. Make sure you bring all your vests, your, you know, get everything together. I'm like, okay, cool. So I leave, I get to Baghdad. When I get to Baghdad, I'm going there to get a CT scan. So I get my CT scan. The doctor comes over and he says, you know, he's like shuffling the results in his hand and he sits me down. He's like, well, and he says verbatim, we know that there is blood flowing in and out of it, but we know we highly suggest that you go to a longitudinal Germany to get an MRI, but it's up to you. I was like, okay, like, the further I get away from Iraq, the more rest and sleep I'll get. So I'm like, get me on that damn plane. <laughs> I want to get over there because I'm so exhausted. I am so tired. Like the further I am away from this war zone, I'll get to get some rest. So I'm like, count me in. So I get on the next flight. I get on this huge, huge airplane. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a big, huge one. Not a normal flight. Get onto it. <clears throat> and I remember falling asleep on a plane. When I woke up, there was a burn victim that was inside of me that had been blown up through um, an IED. It was so horrific. It was so sad. So bad. So bad. So bad. But it's just, it was war, you know, this is what's happening. And I was just like, I cannot wait to get 
away from all of this stuff. Like the sooner I get further away, the better. So I finally get to Launch Trail Germany and I feel so good. I feel better. I feel like I have a little bit more energy. I'm not as exhausted. Like it's really pretty. It's picturesque. Like it's Germany. And there's so much history. Plus I can drink a beer. So I'm like, this is going to be good. I can relax a little bit. Get there. They take the MRI. And I remember him telling me that it was a tumor. And I was like, you know, what is a tumor? Like, I don't even know what a tumor is. I've never, you know, I have no clue what that is. And he's like, okay, you know, the tumor is either benign or it's cancerous. And I'm like, oh, this is like, this is really serious. You know, it's like, I had no clue that this is this mass that was in my leg that was growing. That was, it was cancer. Like I had, I thought I pulled a muscle off my leg somehow. And it balled up or something like that's what I thought it was. And I, I chalked it up to, to being that until that day, he told me that it was some sort of tumor. So he's telling me it's the tumor, you know, I go back and I'm in constant contact with my mother at the time and I'm calling her, letting her know what, what, you know, what the doctor said. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what kind of tumor it is. You know, we didn't know that you can get tumors in your legs. What? I mean, I'm only aware of breast cancer, lung cancer, brain cancer, stomach cancer, you know, the, all the cancers that people talk about skin cancer. Like I've never heard of anybody having cancer in their leg. You know, I just, I've never heard of it. Never seen it on commercials. Like I, I just, it made no sense. <clears throat> so I thought they had the wrong person. Right. I'm like, they're not very smart. <laughs> you know, they're definitely have like misdiagnosed me or something like these people are like, they're not that smart. This is what I kept telling myself. Like there's, it's impossible. So after I, you know, do the MRI, find out the tumor, it's, you know, all of that. They tell me I have to do a biopsy. I remember when I got the biopsy done, you know, the guy's putting his gloves on and he's clacking it, and, you know, getting ready to do everything. And I'm just like laying in this little area and him numbing it, everything up. And I remember him like, you know, cutting it open, taking the biopsy and then him telling that, telling me that, um, let's hope and pray it's not Ewing sarcoma. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> you know, what is Ewing sarcoma? Like, how do you spell it? I don't even know how to read that thing. Like, what is that? Like, what is Ewing sarcoma? And I was like, okay, can you write it down? Cause I was not going to remember. And he's like, well, let's just hope and pray it's a nerve sheath tumor. And I'm like, what is that? Like, what are these things? You know, I, I just had no clue what this was. I'm like, this is crazy. So I had him write it down and I go back, talk to my mom. And I was like, yeah, you know, he, he, he hopes it's not Ewing's and he, he hopes it's a nerve sheath tumor. And my mom's like, like, what? Okay. You know, like tell me how to spell it. So she looks it up online and we're both looking it up and it's cancer. And I'm like, wow, how could this happen? Like, I, I thought I was like, this, could this be my karma? Was I a bad person? Like, what did I do to like deserve this? Now my mother's going to watch me die. I'm going to die. You know, it's like, this is horrible. And I'm only 24 years old. Like I've barely lived any damn life. How could this happen to me? So, you know, of course you go into depression and I don't know what type of cancer it is. I just know that both of those are cancers and they're not good cancers. And so I've just tell my mom, like, let's just hope and pray it's Ewing. I mean, that it's um, not Ewing's and that's the nerve sheath tumor. Let's just, you know, we'll pray for the the, the better of the evil. <clears throat> so we had no clue really what, what was going to be happening. So when we got off the phone, I remember I was crying really hard and there was a guy, I'm actually still friends with him who was all the way on the other side of this cubicle in this huge room. And I was crying I, like loud because <laughs> I didn't know anybody else was in there. And he like pops his head up and he's like, excuse me, miss. I'm like, 
crying because I'm dying and I know I'm dying and I'm going to be meeting my maker soon. I'm just so distraught. And he's like, do you believe in God? And I was like, I believe in God. And he's like, listen, God wouldn't put you through something that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't beat. And I was just like, what does that mean? Like, (laughs) I don't want to do this anymore. Like I haven't even started. I'm just like, I don't want to do this. I do not want to have to go through like my hair is just getting to a good length. Like I'm all vain and stuff and cocky. I'm like, I don't want to do this. That all went away quickly. But yeah, um, when I find out finally, when I, when they bring me back to tell me what type of cancer it is, they misdiagnose me. They tell me it's a nerve sheath tumor. So I automatically think I have like, like by the skin of my teeth, I have, you know, I have beat it kind of like I got the good one, not the bad one. So I think it's a nerve sheet tumor because that's what they tell me I have. I'm like, okay, like, that's cool. Fine. Then I get onto the plane. I have to go to Walter Reed now to get all of my treatment, get everything done to start it all over there. And when I get to Walter Reed, my mom is there because she quits her job. She leaves everything in Texas and she comes and she moves with me inside of the hospital to come take care of me because she knows that I need her. <laughs> That's my mom, you know? I'm so fortunate to have her there as a support system. I'm so lucky that she was able to do that because a lot of people, they just can't leave their life to come take care of somebody sick. Like that doesn't happen. But she moved, came and took care of me in the hospital, not knowing she would have a place to live, where they were going to eat, sleep, any of that stuff. And she brought my little nephew, who was two years old at the time, um, uh, there as well, because my sister was deployed as well. So I get to our, I get to Walter Reed. I remember being there and um, them telling me that I had to do a new biopsy. And I remember thinking, like, why would I need to do a new biopsy? Like, we already know it's a nerve sheath tumor. You know, we really need to get this chemotherapy started. Like, I don't want to die. Let's hurry up and do this thing. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, we have to make sure it's 100% that it's a nerve sheath tumor. Chemotherapy is really hard on the body. You don't want to make any mistakes. I'm like, oh, my God. Just, like, give me the treatment already. Do another biopsy. And then they come back and they tell me it's Ewing sarcoma cancer. And from there, I lost it. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, they misdiagnosed me. That's the cancer the doctor didn't want me to have. Online, it says it spreads to your lungs, your spinal cord, your brainstem. I'm like, I'm dead. That's it. That is it. And so then I go to a really bad depression. They put me on antidepressants and stuff. But it was really, really surreal the entire time. It's just like being on a roller coaster ride, not knowing where the, where you're going to end up getting off at, where the dips are going to be. Like you just like you're blind and you don't know what's happening, but you have to get on the ride so you can get off. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm a really incredible story that you told. And I think there's a lot of questions that I think Izu and I will have um, based on everything you shared so far. Um, but I think you highlighted a lot of important points as to why, and we're, we think it's really important to be doing this podcast and having people like you on the show. Cause, uh, like you mentioned, you know, you didn't know anything about these kind of cancers that can happen in the leg, like sarcomas. And we, we talked about that in the, our, our very first episode, but, you know, we know sarcomas just in general, all comers, it's extremely rare compared to every other kind of cancer out there. and so trying to share more information about it with patients and family members, et cetera, is, is incredibly important that um, there's more, more knowledge, more education about it. And the things that you're doing as well, going out and speaking to people about it is really important also, but, um, but yeah, that's, 
um, a really incredible story. Definitely. Um, uh, question, uh, some just questions for probably some of the listeners. Um, sorry, some questions for the listeners. So your second biopsy, was that an open biopsy? It sounds like you might have had one done maybe percutaneously. If both of them were open. Both of them were open. Okay. But were you awake for both or just one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they just localized it and um, did the biopsy. So it wasn't like it was anything, not like a massive surgery, right? They just cut it, take, you know, they put this like gun inside of it or something. Okay. And, right. and they pulled yeah. skin out and, you know, so I did that. But I also did a bone marrow biopsy. And that by far is the most painful thing in the world. Don't let them tell you that it just feels uncomfortable because that's not true. Literally, they're breaking the bone, sucking the bone marrow out of the bone. It's horrific. It's so bad. I was, I was begging them to put me, to put me under like anesthesia, but they said the procedure was too short that I could, you know, I'm young. I can take the pain. So let me tell you, when I went in there, I had straight hair. Okay. When I came out, my hair was curly from all the sweat. (laughs) All of this, I was like sweating profusely. My body was going in shock. It was horrible. And I was awake. Yeah, we might have to work on that. Um, You you received the bone marrow because of the diagnosis of Ewing sarcoma. Yep, I had to get that tested, make sure it wasn't inside the bone. So thank goodness it didn't get inside the bone. It stayed localized. It was in my left inner thighs. The adductor muscle is where it was at. Yep, just stayed right there and didn't go anywhere. Thank goodness. And... You know, it's been okay. Um, just to, a quick question. Like, what was the amount of time you think it took from the start to finish in order to get that diagnosis before you started treatment? I'm sure our patients are always kind of curious about that. And of course, it's going to be different a little bit place to place and patient to patient. Like you mentioned, having to get a second biopsy, which uh, it doesn't happen all the time, but it's not uncommon when there can be some uh discrepancy as to what the diagnosis is. Like you said, making sure the diagnosis is correct is the most important part. So it's sometimes that can happen when uh, it's unclear based on the tissue that uh, tissue sample that was um, derived from the original biopsy. So that, that can happen. Um, but, but yeah, so what was, what was that time frame like? It was about three weeks. So I went in January, so like January 27th or something, or January 19th, January, the end of January sometime, um, I got the biopsy. And then, you know, I'm, I have um, a nerve sheet tumor is what they say I have. And then like a couple days later, I have to fly out to Walter Reed. I get to Walter Reed like February 4th and then do the new biopsy. And then that from there, they have to kind of get a new regimen of chemotherapy that I have to do. Then I'm newly diagnosed and I have to do all these other tests and and other biopsies. So I started my treatment on February 23rd in 2009. Yeah, it was, it was, it was hard. I did a lot of chemotherapy, a lot. I did it for um, five days on, eight days off, five days on, eight days off. And I continued that for 10 months. And I did about 101 rounds of chemo in a year, or not even a year, about 10 months. Definitely um, very tough. And for that, prior either around the time of the chemotherapy and your treatments um did you receive any uh specific guidance as a young woman uh maybe about children or anything like that so because everything happened so fast and because like the whole point was just like to save my life you know 
there was no talk about harvesting any eggs. There was nothing about, do I want to have kids in the, in the future? Not really. I think they asked me if I wanted to have children. It was, you know, later on, but they put me on something called a Lupron shot. And the Lupron shot was supposed to put me through menopause in hopes of preserving my eggs. And it was going to give me, instead of like a 7% chance of having kids, now I'd have a 17%. Like really, I didn't want to do it, but my mom was like, Brandy, you know, you know, I never wanted children. I always wanted to be like a stepmom or like the cool aunt or something. I don't know, but this is this is what I wanted. So I was like, I don't really mind not having kids. Like, that's totally fine with me. She's like, Brandy, you're only 24 years old. You might change your mind. I'm like, okay, fine. I've never changed my mind. <laughs> it's always been the same thing. Being a step parent has been amazing. Great. I love it. But yeah, I had to do chemotherapy on top of this Lupron shot which makes you go through menopause. So I would be going through my treatments and my chemotherapy and then having on top of it, really aggressive hot flashes because I was now in menopause. It was horrible. It was horrible. It was so bad. I was having night sweats. I'm like, like, I'm so hot. You know, it's, 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 it was just horrible. So there was not much talk of it, but a little bit, you know, they just, they didn't tell me really give me an like a, an option to do anything. They kind of just started the treatment right now. And then as the treatment was going, then they brought it up like, hey, we're not sure if you want kids in the future. If you do, you have to do this Lupron shot. My mom talked me into it. I did it. And it was, it made it even worse. Made it even worse. Yeah. Um, it all sounds very tough. And it seems like you were able to, to be, I guess, tougher than the cancer and the treatment. Um, question. Um, did you have any additional uh, treatment? So did you have any radiation uh, along with the chemotherapy or was the chemotherapy and the response on the tumor enough to not uh, require something else? Um, and then timing wise, when did you get your surgery in that time period? Mm-hmm. So I had to do a two step when I did six rounds, six cycles of chemotherapy. And then I did a massive, massive surgery that was super invasive. So when I first started treatment, the chemotherapy, not the chemotherapy, like the cancer, the tumor was like the size of a baby watermelon. And it was in my left inner thigh. So it was huge, just like sticking out of my leg. So as I was doing the cancer or doing the treatment for the cancer, it would shrink down, shrink down, shrink down. And so it got to like a good enough size, but it wasn't really shrinking anymore. So then we did surgery to remove it. And so when they tell me that they're going to do surgery to remove this tumor, the tumor is like this big, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good, pretty decent size. It's not as big as it was. So they tell me they're going to have to get clean margins. I don't know what that means. I've, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I think that they like, are going to be so nice. And they're going to like, you know, let me have some of my leg at least, you know, (laughs) no, that's not what happened at all. They took out my entire adductor muscle out of my leg, which is like one of the largest um, muscles in the leg. So the muscle that allows you to bring your legs in, you know, or to have like the quick agility movement, like side to side, that muscle is gone. So I have one small leg and one regular voluptuous normal looking leg, you know, but the other leg is like really small and skinny because it's missing this big part out of it. So they removed that. <clears throat> so when I'm going through my surgery, I wake up from it. Um, or not even wake up before I go to my surgery, they tell me that they're not even sure if I'm going to be able to keep my left leg because the margins that I have to get, it might, you know, that might not be clean margins. So I don't know if I'm going to wake up with my left leg. I don't know what's going to happen. 
So I remember laying in the bed and I'm waking up from anesthesia and I have a nerve blocker on my left leg. So I can't move my legs. I'm like, Oh my God, you know, they took my leg and I'm just like, Oh, this is terrible. Like, Oh my God. And then like, I pulled the sheet up and I can see my toes and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> never mind. You know, I have them. They're there. Like everything is all right. But the leg was so swollen and it kept getting infected. And I really didn't know like the extent of what they had taken out until like after surgery was done after I healed up. And then I saw that it was, you know, they took out seven pounds out of my leg. And I was like, I just feel like that was pretty extensive guys. Like, <laughs> Could we have just left me a little bit, but yeah, they removed a huge part after that. And then I continued with more chemotherapy. Yeah. Uh, um, I think, uh, whenever we talk about and as surgeons uh, i'm sure at least we do this as well we sort of want to when you do a like a consent process before the surgery you always want to try to cover as many of the potential possibilities right and for any complex procedure sort of like a like a sarcoma resection you know i think there are large blood vessels involved nearby and so Often, it's not uncommon that that ends up being part of the discussion along the way is, you know, a potential of, you know, losing the limb, even though we're trying to save the limb. Yeah, it was a, a limb salvage, where, a limb sparing, limb sparing surgery is what I had. And I was like, just please, I was begging, like, I don't just let me please, you know, because I play sports my entire life. I'm like, how am I, my whole identity, I've been playing since I was six years old, all the way up until 24, you know, I've been inside, inside of some sort of sport playing for Olympic development programs, you know, doing all these great things. And now, like, now what, now what happens? You know, this is not what I, what I planned back in the day. This is not what I dreamt about as a little girl. And then do you remember what your physicians told you about uh, what the response was of your tumor to the chemotherapy you got beforehand and um, what they told you about margins. I know you mentioned that they said they wanted to get clean margins. Is that what happened? And um, kind of, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So they got clean margins. Thank goodness. Cause if they didn't, they're going to have to do an amputation at my hip area. So that was going to not be great. So they got clean margins. They didn't really just Gus, what the like diameters, like, you know, what exactly clean margins look like, like how much they were going to be taken out. It was very gray. They were just like, we have to get clean margins. And I'm thinking maybe an inch that seems kind of clean to me. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, you know? So when they took out this huge portion out of my leg, I'm like, does, I don't, does that, is that, are those clean margins? I feel like that's like a lot more than like a margin. I don't know. So I just didn't understand that lingo. And I didn't know what to ask because I've never gone through this. I had you know, I'm just like, whatever, it's cool. So they, they took out the clean margins, did all of that. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't tell me exactly what the percentage was that like ate the cancer, or you know, stopped the cancer from growing and killing it off. Um, but it has shrunk dramatically. Like it, it was, it was huge. It was so big, so big. And by the time it was, you know, time for surgery, it had condensed down quite a bit. Um, so I wasn't thinking they were going to take out that much because it, you know, I just, I didn't know. I'm not, you know, a doctor. I have no clue how that all works, but um, yeah. So, but before they did the surgery <clears throat> and they were going to be treating me with chemotherapy and they were kind of not very hopeful of like the diagnosis of potentially living. They told me I had a year left to live. They told me that 
I had to get all of my affairs in order. So I was updating my will. I was making sure that people were getting the right percentages. Like I thought I was going to die. The doctors thought I was going to die. Everybody in there thought I was going to die. I'd have a chaplain who was a Hispanic man, an older gentleman. He would come in with this huge crucifix. I mean, it was huge. I have a picture of it. It's you know an old picture, but it was hanging from my bed and he'd lay it on me all dramatic and he'd be praying over me in Spanish and like asking me, do I believe in God? And do I know where I'm going? Like, it was just, so surreal. And of course they mean well and all of that, but just during the entire process of like prepping for death and knowing that I'm going to have to face my own mortality, it was very hard, very surreal. Like, I just felt like it was so unfair that I was going through this, that my mom was going through this, that my nephew wasn't going to have an aunt. Like I just, none of it made any sense, but you know, as, as time went on, thank goodness they were wrong, you know, because you really can't, it's really hard to tell people what's going to be happening with them and then just base it off statistics because we're all different. We all have different bodies. We all have different, you know, everything, you know, what may work for somebody else doesn't work for another person. So they were just kind of grouping me and saying, Hey, this is probably what's going to happen. Thank God it didn't. But I mean, that was really hard on my mental health as well, but you know, they, they did the best they could, you know, so they didn't have much hope at first. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, it sounds like quite an experience. I think it's really like, we're really grateful to get to talk to you to kind of hear a little bit more about what things are like from, from our patients perspective and people like you. And I think it, you know, it's bringing a lot of things to light for me about how to try to talk to patients differently about preparing them for surgery or about diagnoses and like you said, it's, it's hard and uh, something that works well for one person may not work as well for someone else too. And that even goes with the way you communicate um, also. Uh, But, but yeah. And, and like you brought up the point of how it was unclear to you what that meant in terms of clean margins. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure Izu can comment on this as well, but we try to talk to our patients about that and how it involves taking some normal tissue around it. But it's hard to really go into the the finite details of what that might mean. And it can still definitely be a shock, I think, waking up. But um, I think yeah, we try to emphasize the importance that you never want to see the tumor during the surgery uh, in most circumstances, unless it's near a critical structure. But, um, but yeah, it's really challenging. I enjoyed getting to hear your side of that experience. And I, I've learned a lot from, from what you've shared with us so far. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's really important that the doctors show empathy as well. And I feel like that really makes a difference. And I feel like sometimes that's what's missing from the whole experience, because it's an experience really going through cancer, like you experienced it, the whole experience sometimes. I feel like it is hard, like you, your doctors, you have to see these people, you don't want to get attached to them because something happens and that kind of affects you as well. But it also is great to know that you're just not like some number or just like this, like random person that who's going to die. Like you want to know that somebody's in your corner rooting for you, you know? So I had a couple of doctors who weren't as empathetic, but then they ended up switching to a different team and they were really great. The, the, the nurses were amazing. Like everybody felt like a, like a really good family. And I just feel like that also is really important because cancer is already isolating. You don't want to feel alone while you're with your team trying to kind of, you know, beat the cancer. I do. I, I do have a follow-up to that. You know, when you speak about, you speak about, you know, cancer, 
um, sort of being isolating. And you've talked about and touched on mental health a couple of times already today. And so um, you mentioned taking some antidepressants. What were some other things you felt that you did, uh, you know, along the way through this arduous time period to maintain your mental health, at least to uh, the point that it allowed you to to go through, uh, you know, the entire chemotherapy, the surgery with the multiple infections, uh, and to get through and the swollen leg and to get through all of that? Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of different things. The first was I had a really strong <clears throat> support system. My mother was there. So she, a lot of people, you know, they don't have this. And I, I really feel like this is why I've been able to be here today. And I, I have a whole nother spiel about how important this, the support system is and how they really, they really matter as well, just as much as the cancer survivors. But <clears throat> when I was going through all of this, right, and I was, thought I was going to die, the doctors thought I was going to die. My mom, actually, it's not like it's, I don't suggest this or anything, but this is what she did. So she was noticing that, you know, I was getting depressed and listening to what the doctors were telling me and all of that. And, you know, I felt like it was like more of like a one way street, like what I was trying to ask or wanted to happen. Like I, it wasn't met with what I wanted to hear. Right. Cause the doctors were like, this isn't, this is probably what's going to happen. I want life. They think I'm going to die. So my mom actually ends up closing off my door or in my room and putting a sign that says, do not enter unless they're going to be feeding me, <laughs> unless they're going to give me medication, unless they're coming in with my vitals, right? And so she was really trying to stop all of the all of the information or trying to, you know, be a gatekeeper of all the information and the statistics and, you know, coming in and telling me that I'm going to die. I have to update my will and all my affairs in order. So she stopped all of that. And she sat me on the bed and she was like, I know that these doctors, and according to statistics, you're not going to be here and you're not going to make it. But I don't believe in that. She's like, I believe in you. And I know you have more fight in you. She's like, we're going to do this together. We're going to turn around a mind frame. What we started doing was focusing on the future. We started thinking about all the great things I was going to do, how amazing life was going to be, you know, how this was going to be this crazy experience that I went through. But somehow, some way, it was going to be a miracle story. I was going to tell the world about it. I'm going to be like, we just started thinking of all these crazy things. And I started believing in what she was telling me. And I started really feeling like, okay my mom believes I can do this, then I could probably do this. Like I could, I could give it a little bit more thought, like I could push a little bit more. So I started just really focusing on my mental health and where it was at and, and the importance of like speaking health and wealth and like, and what I wanted and like positive stuff into me. And my mom would also do the same. So everything I said, if I had cancer, I would, I would not even acknowledge it as strange, but I wouldn't. I would just start talking about like what I was going to do in the future, how great life was going to be, what was going to be happening. And that's what really kept me from really going off the, on the deep end. Cause I was on a lot of medication for a while. I was on tons of antidepressants. Anyone you can think of, I was on it. And it would just make me feel like zoned out. Like I was, you know, like a zombie, like I wasn't, had no personality. I, I wasn't me at all. But as soon as I shifted my mind from being, you know, helpless and hopeless and feeling like life was just moving on without me. And I had no say so. And I take, took the power back. Life changed dramatically for me. It, it really did. My, I responded to the treatment better. You know, I was, I mean, chemotherapy is already hard, but it was hard, but it wasn't as hard. Like I just knew that this was not going to be the end. This was like more like a chapter of the book. 
not the entire book. Like there was so much more to live for. There was so much more that I could be doing with this story. So I started journaling and started writing. I started going to therapy. I started, you know, just trying to work with what I had and make it work for me and my best benefits rather than just like being so depressed all the time. Cause I mean, really it's a choice, you know, you, you're choosing to feel like that kind of, I don't know how to explain that part. Some people have like mental illnesses and stuff, but I felt like for me, it was a choice. Like, do I want to feel bad or do I want to go paint something and be happy? Do I want to feel, you know, really depressed that I'm missing this huge chunk out of my leg or do I want to go visit somebody down the ward and go cheer them up? You know? So I was just, I took different ways that made me feel more empowered and it really helped me. That's awesome. And kind of on that note, um, I feel like you're already starting to answer this question already, but what led you or drove you to become an advocate for patients with sarcoma? And it sounds like this was part of that experience and, and kind of breaking through that depression, but um, tell us if there was more to that and, and what led you to where you are now. Yeah. So when I was going through my treatment, going through all the cancer and all of that terrible stuff, I made a promise to myself. So I, I promised that I would. So I started journaling <clears throat> and this journal originally started out as like a keepsake for my nephew because we all thought I was going to die and I wanted to leave something for him. So he would remember me. And I wasn't just like, you know, some memory told off my mother's lips. Like I had something to give him in the event that I passed away. And so after like a couple of months of journaling and in my mind frame shifting, I made a promise to myself. And I was like, okay, if I get to live, I'm going to take this journal. I'm going to make a book. And when I make this book, I am going to become an advocate. I don't know how, I don't even know what that is. I don't know any of this stuff. I'm just like, I'm. this is what I want. And this is what we kind of like daydreamed about and thought was going to be amazing and cool. So I had like this blueprint. No way did I think any of it was going to come true, but I just knew if I had the opportunity of like, I feel like also when we are so depressed and we're so beat down and we have like, we're then like, we're bargaining with, with God and we're like, God, please give me another chance. Like I will do X, Y, and Z. And now it's time to really show up and do X, Y, and Z. Like it's your ob- obligation to do that. So I felt like it was my duty. Like I was obligated. I said, I wanted to be this cancer advocate. I said, I wanted to help spread awareness about sarcoma cancer. I said, I wanted to publish this book. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know what, you know, grand scheme and how big the story is going to be. I have no clue, but I know that that's what I need to get done. So that's kind of how it all unfolded was just making promises to myself and just thinking that one day it could happen. And if it does happen, how cool I can check it off, you know, my bucket list, like I did that, but I didn't know it was going to be to like this extent. I had no clue. I just, I know whatever you're passionate about and whatever you feel really feeds your soul and really gives you a sense of purpose. It doesn't feel like work. So it just, it's like, it's so easy. Like I have a a friend, her name is Donna. Her son just passed away from sarcoma cancer, you and sarcoma cancer. And I, you know, we've been talking for a couple of months now and I don't really know her very well. I've known her from Instagram and stuff. And we've been keeping a contact for like the last three years but I know she needs a support system and I know that she's lonely and I know that she's very lost. And so I'm booking a trip to go visit her. I don't even know this lady like that, but I'm going to go visit her and I'm going to let her cry on my shoulders and let her know that everything's okay. And it's not like um, I have anything that's going to bring her son back, but I know that if 
I can bring her some sort of peace, you know, that it, it was just, just feel like it's my duty to help, you know, to help her to, to do this. So and that's what I do with everybody. I, not everybody gets a trip, <laughs> not everybody gets a hug and all that stuff, but I do talk to a lot of people and try to, you know, not really coach them, but not say counsel either. Cause I'm not any of those, but just give them advice about believing in yourself. And it doesn't matter if the statistics are so stacked up against you. There's these things called miracles and they happen all the time. Just being there really providing some support. And, you know, if I would take the opportunity to say, uh, probably from our entire team here, our condolences and sorry for your loss, Donna. And then for, for those of our listeners um, who, you know, find that they don't have a support system, you know, just, you know, if you, if you, you know, we want you to know that uh, our team here at Sarcoma Inside thinks that you can do it. Um, so, and, and really trying to keep that positive mindset, uh, you know, and, and maintain that mental health through that process, through the entire process is very important. Yeah. And I, I think it kind of goes back to our episode where we spoke with Dr. Weiss as well and mentioned, you know, don't ever take away the hope. Um, there's always hope. And I think kind of what you talked about today brings up that exact same point. Um, I think we kind of struggle from our perspective of trying to be really honest and open with patients, but at the same time, like you said, you still want to be positive and empathetic and uh, it's, it's a tough balance for us to, to play that role. But um, uh, you know, I think we learn from speaking to, to people like you about their experiences and ways that we can be better and, and serve patients like you better and make that experience as, you know, easy as possible in what is otherwise an extremely difficult experience to go through. But, and, and kind of on that note, I guess you were saying this a little bit also, but what would Queen Brandy today say to Queen Brandy from the past uh, when you were right in the middle of all of this and, you know, having a really hard time? Is there anything you would have wanted someone like yourself to say, uh, at that point that maybe could have helped through it. Just don't give up on yourself. That's it. Believe in yourself. I feel like that's half the battle <clears throat> is believing in whatever it is. You know, there's got to be some sort of belief. And in, in order to accept some sort of information, you have to believe that, right? So the doctors, not the doctors, just in general, right? This it's just not only for cancer. This is just in general, like don't give up on yourself. Don't run the race before it's already started. Like, don't give up. Don't just don't give up. That is my biggest thing. I tell people all the time, don't give up on yourself. Cancer is not what it used to be. You know, there's people living through cancer. They're surviving. There's individuals who are thriving. They're doing well. Um, but I just think it's important that, you know, just don't give up before the race has even started. Like, how do you do that? Yes, you have cancer. Now you're just going to let yourself die. So you have to fight. You have to fight. You have to push forward. You got you to keep moving. You got to keep going and finding something to live for. It's also really important. Like I did tons of little, little things of that. I have a really crazy story. I don't know if we have time, but I can tell you if you want me to. <clears throat> Maybe we do. I don't know. Do we? I don't know. I, I'm, I would love to hear a story. Yeah, yeah <laughs> whatever you like to hear. the rest of the team, but yeah. Yeah, whatever you like to hear. Oh, it's not a bad story. It's a good story. <laughs> it's a good one, but it's, you know, kind of find some motivation for stuff. So I don't know what cycle I'm in, but I'm bald. I'm sick. I'm not well. I look very ill. My skin's gray. I have dark circles. You know, I just look like the average 
you know, not well cancer patient. And I remember watching on TV. So my mom's sitting in the bed with me and we're watching TV together in my hospital room at Walter Reed Medical Center in DC at the time. So we're watching TV and I see on this commercial, it's this car that drives by and it's a Chrysler 300. And I was looking to my mom and I said, I want that car. And she's like, you want the car? I was like, I want that car. She's like, let's go get it. So we escaped the hospital. Okay. Cause I wasn't supposed to go anywhere. So I leave the hospital. Okay. Ball headed all everything. And, and I'm in a wheelchair <clears throat> and my mom puts me in the car. And then the car that I had at the time was a, it was a Mitsubishi Eclipse, a little gray little car. And so I wanted a new one because it was so low to the ground that it would, it hurt my leg and my body to like get all the way down, come all the way up. Like it was just so hard on me. So I was like, I need something that's a little higher that I could, you know, move around in. And plus I wanted a new car. Right. So we drive all the way down to this dealership in Silver Lakes in Maryland. And we get there and I'm looking for this car. I'm like, I have to find this car. I have to find this car. And I find it. Chrysler 300. It's like this bluish teal color. I'm like, that's the one I want. So we go down there, talk to the sales rep and, you know, we're talking to him and her name was Betty, this, the, the sales woman person. And she was like, well, who's the car for? And I was like, the car is going to be for me. And she looks at my mom like, like that's I don't know about that. So we start walking into the little office and she sits me down and she sits down to my mom and she's like, do you think this is a good idea to get the car? I was like, yeah, this is, yeah, I want this car. I was like, you know, I have like, I wouldn't pay cash. Like I have the money. I want the car. She's like, let me be right back. So she leaves and she comes back with the general manager and some other guy. And they're like talking to me and asking me like, is like, is this lady serious? Does she really want this car? And I look ill. Like I look so bad. And what I think what they were discussing is, was this going to be an ethical sale, right? Do you give this girl this car? And so what I had to tell them was that in order for me to look forward in life and to keep pushing on was I needed this car because I needed to look forward to making these car payments every single month. I needed something to live for. I needed this car. This car was going to give me a sense of purpose. Long story short, I ended up driving out <laughs> with the car. So this is what I tell people. I tell them, have some sort of purpose. What, what are you living for? What does that look like for you? What does that look like? Is it, is it a car? Is it a, are you writing a book? Are you going to publish your book? Are you going to be there for your, your family members? Like, What is it that's going to give you a little bit more? So, so the days that you feel like quitting and you don't want to do it anymore, that you have to push a little extra more because you have to be here. So I had to find stuff, small little things that would make me want to be here. Yes, that was like materialistic. And I really wanted that car. That doesn't mean it has to be for everybody, but I do get the advice of having something to live for. I think that's also really important. I think you're the first person who said they were excited or looking forward to making their car payment every month. So, <laughs> but that's a, a great way of, of looking at it. And um, that's a really great story. I'll definitely remember that. So thank you so much for sharing yeah. that story. Yeah. Uh, I think we can picture it and everything. <laughs> if you'd like to take on extra car payments, just let me know. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. And I think um I think with that that will bring this episode fantastic episode to a close. Um you know we we do like to remind everyone that it is important to note that every case is unique and treatment for each diagnosis is dependent on the discussion with your team of physicians. Uh if you would like more information 
um, for this episode. You can uh, reach out to us with any questions or reach out to us on Instagram and or Twitter. Uh, and we will be attaching uh, Brandy Benson's information uh, on our Instagram post as well as on our episode description uh, as well. And um, next episode, we we have done a few heavy topics recently, so we'll be going to something benign and talking about bone cysts, unicameral bone cysts, as well as aneurysmal bone cysts. Um, thank you for listening to this episode of Sarcoma Insight. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast uh, and or follow us on Instagram and or Twitter at Sarcoma Insight Podcast. Thank you so much, Brandy, Queen Brandy. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank I love you. It. That was great. Yes. Thank that you for really joining great. us. Sarcoma Insight.